gotta come back with me. Where? Back to the future. Hey, Doc, we better back up. We don't have enough roads to get up to 88. Roads? Well, we're going. We don't need roads. My name is Neville Sample. I'm an ex-former footballer for Everton and Wales. Uh, my career was over about, I think, 17 to 19 years um, with Everton. And it was a lot longer after that. Well, it just felt a lot longer. During that time, I think I won two first division winners, which is the Premier League now. Two FA Cups, 10 years apart. European Cup, Winners Cup, some charity sealed stuff. Um... Cup with his cup, I think, and then various bits and pieces. Really, I'm now getting towards 60 years old. I work in a special school in Ebervale, and my job there is basically dog's body security, bringing funding in, linking with businesses, taking the kids out, um, stopping them fighting, um, basically anything that needs doing, really. And obviously, this the, the, the podcast itself now is about uh, mental health and, and men's mental health. Could you give us an idea as to? why you agreed to do an interview for us? Well, because it needs talking about, and I, and I think I come from an age where, um, you know, my dad went through a war. Um, he, he got bayoneted, he lost his lung, he got shot. Um, he came back, never said a word about it, ever. You know, when, when I, when I, when I, as I've got older, and I've talked to other people, you know what? I don't honestly understand what was going through his head, to be fair. You know, you, how how would you cope with that? I have no idea. And then obviously, the way things have worked out, you know, I've seen a lot of young players come through Everton who were either uh, nowhere near ready psychologically for what it was going to take. And it's just built from there, really. And obviously, working in the field that I work now, I've done, I've worked with kids for, you know, a long, long time. And, and we've got a really ridiculous way of treating kids in this country where we put the education first and the child second, mm. a man or a woman. But I, but I think, you know, when I first got in the team or I first started playing football, I was 12 when I made my debut and everybody just said, look, if the, uh, you never show it, just crack on. And it was that. You, you, you were fed a, a thing where you weren't supposed to show any weaknesses whatsoever. And, you know, obviously it did ruin a few people's lives and... I think I think the main reason is that you you need to have people to talk and and oh it's it's braver to talk than it is to keep quiet I think. What was your relationship like with football when you were when you were a child? Did you always want to be a footballer? Um, well, in, in primary school I just liked diving about. Um, when I got to sort of secondary school, I didn't like the school much. To be fair, I loved PE. I was lucky because I always played sort of two years above my 
my age group. Um, when I was obviously 14, I was playing, I was 12, and I was playing in the man's league on a Saturday. Oh, sorry, school first, Saturday morning, and then a man's league in the afternoon, then some, a pub team on a Sunday, and then my own age group on a Sunday afternoon. So I was playing four four games a week, really, and it was it, it was good. You know, I, I learned an awful lot, and I, and I think, daft as it seems, I, I benefited, I think, more from playing higher, faster, and with men, because I, I never had the, you know, the confrontations I had with people, you know, sort of physical con- contact really was, was to be expected and was a norm and nothing was, so, so I enjoyed that. But so the other side of it, when I played my own age, was it was quite a breeze really, because nobody was going to be as intimidated as the, the fellows I was playing against. So for me, it was, it was a good way in. But people forget the other bits. You know, it's, it, you know when you've got kids, they behave like kids. Mm. about and stuff like that and where it, I think sometimes around the men if you just and I've, I've seen it in schools and I've seen it working with people if you've got the right role models around you it do not help your behaviour itself and, and, and the way you do things and the way you approach things and does shape your sort of models a little bit and you know when you're in school now some of the kids you know can't relate to me whatsoever but some can mm. relate to other people so it's, I think it's sometimes it's finding that right person to be with and to have like a key worker, if, if you like, to, to work with that. And I'm convinced all the mental health things are, you know, you can you can spend millions and millions on psychiatrists, but I, I think the main thing is is people want a pair of ears and, and they want to be able to talk to somebody, uh, but it's got to be the right person. Yeah. You know, yourself, if you, go, if you go to the wrong doctor or you go to the wrong dentist, then... Your relationship's not very good. If you go to the right one, it's fantastic, and you 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 know you don't enjoy going there, but you 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 get more out of your experiences than you do going anywhere else. And I think it's the same for everything. You walk in a good shop where they're, they're really nice to you and whatever, then people go back. If you have a bad you know relationship in that shop or they're not very good, then you don't go back. So I think everybody needs the right person. The trick is in this country is it's so hard to find that right person for everybody individually. So you, you get a psychiatrist or a psychologist that will work with a group of people, not necessarily all the right people. And I think sometimes, you know, a, a switch of personality sometimes can make a massive difference. And once you've made them steps to get in front of somebody and it's the wrong person, you know, it can be really, really damaging for you. You know, it can put you back to, you know, a couple of years at least. And I, and I do think sometimes, you know, we forget how important it is you know, forget your qualifications, forget everything else. It, it, it's that first bit when you walk into somewhere and you feel comfortable. I know I know you can walk into places and you become comfortable over time. So, that, so there is that. But sometimes things just don't work. You know, I, I don't get on with all the kids at school because it's impossible because there's so many. You're not always going to have a good relationship with everybody you meet. Yes, you can, you can help, but it, it means that there would be a better relationship with somebody else if we could find out somebody else. And I think, you know... <laughs> I went to the dentist probably, oh God knows, a year ago, and they, she, you know, I seen the dentist. Said, "Oh well, go and see the woman in there." So I went to see the woman. She said, "I can't take that out." And I said, "Well, I thought you were a dentist," and she said, "Well, it's too much for me." So I went, "All right." So, but it's carried on for six months. Mm. So well, I ain't going back there again, am I? Because I went to somebody else within within thirty seconds. My tooth was out, and I'd been waiting six months. So that's just uh, me. And obviously, only had a toothache. Imagine if I had, you know, real problems, mm. then you'd, you'd be stuck. And I, I do think, 
we're also absolutely, I don't know what you're allowed to swear on here. Yeah, swear away now. <laughs> but absolutely shit at saying things. Uh, and, and the stigma around it is, is just embarrassing. Um, and, and I think it's, the government's probably as much to blame as anyone else. I mean, they're, they're all jumping on a bandwagon now. You can see everybody jumping on a bandwagon now because it's trendy. But this has been going for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. There's slow sea change. But now it's become trendy. Everybody seems to want to jump on the bandwagon of mental health. And, and now it looks to me as that everybody's doing stuff. And, and even that is not coordinated. So it, it looks to me as that we're going, right, okay, there's the wall. If we throw loads of mud against that wall, some of it's bound to stick. So, But we haven't got a real cohesive plan for whatever it is. And yet there's people doing fantastic work in isolation. Mm. You yourselves. You're isolated, aren't you? Where's, where's your group? Where's your, where's, where's your union of people who, who can who can all band together to have a voice? Everybody's doing it with a with a small voice. What we really need is is a big voice, and it's we need the people to speak up. And I think at some stage, all this stuff will quieten down. It'll be left to the same old things again, you know, like yourselves, and there'll be charities that pick stuff up, and the hospitals will pick it up, and you know, somebody's got to get in to change what we're doing because it ain't working. And after this period of isolation, people say there's going to be bigger problems. Well, well, there will be bigger problems. Yeah. But there'll also be bigger problems with domestic abuse. There'll also be bigger po problems with debt. There'll also be bigger problems with homeless people. So there's an awful lot that's going to come out the other end that we're nowhere near equipped to deal with. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with anything anything you've said there now. Um, Going back then to 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 your football career, when you were when you were a, a, a teenager, I believe you um, had a, a tour in Germany and were offered a, a deal with with Fortuna Dusseldorf. Is that right? Well, my uncle used to run the team, and I played for him on a Saturday. But he was he was a bit mad to be fair himself. <laughs> you know, we'd make us run up the Great Hall, and if we weren't there, the bus would drive off and leave you. You know, we we used to turn up at games in the back of the wagons because you couldn't have a bus. So we, he bought this crappiest old coach he could find, and him and his son drove it to Germany. We had a crash as soon as we got into Dusseldorf. Yeah. Uh, we played against Fortuna uh, Dusseldorf on the night, I think, the next night, on Shale. And then when he got on the bus in the morning, about five o'clock, because that's the time we had to leave to get back, um, he said, right, do you want to stay here? And I went, well, no, I want to go home. And he went, well, they want to sign you. I went, right, Okay. Let's go home. It wasn't put very well, let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, what were was... your um, What were your thoughts then when when that was presented to you? Well, I was, I was fourteen. I'd been up all night. Uh, my brother woke me up at two o'clock because he changed all the clocks and told me it was time to get up. So I got get, got dressed, brushed my teeth, did everything, come downstairs, and nobody about was it. So I, I did that, and then so we got back on the bus at five o'clock. I was tired. I just wanted to go home. Because it was a marathon journey, I think it took us nearly well, it took us over a day to get home. Because um, the bus was about forty mile an hour, and if you think from Dusseldorf <laughs> back to London, it was a fair old hike. Yeah, do you know I mean? And uh, you know, looking back on it, if it had been presented properly, it would have been it would have probably been a, a decent proposition for me. But yeah, because I, I, I think I was mature enough to make that decision. That was the only problem. You know, I was fourteen, but I, I really didn't give a shit about anything. You know, would I stay in Germany? Probably not. Do I like Germany? I love Germany as a country. I think they do this stuff really, really well. 
and I probably I would have been a different person. Um, why do you think it took to that age for you to to almost get recognised and you you know to to, to get a contract because you were obviously good enough. I was what do you think was the by loads of people? I was too small and too scruffy. <laughs> That's, <laughs> it. That's it. That was. I mean, I, when I went to crew, I, I played in goal first half and I played centre half second half. We went to Bolton and they, they brought a team and we got smashed six 0 but they wanted me back. And I thought the way they set the trial up was disgrace, so I never went back there. You know, so the, the trials they had were, I enjoyed crew to be fair, but I was taken to the games by a an old fellow who was probably oh, clocking on seventy then. So, um, and I don't know what happened after the crew wanted. They kept telling me they wanted me back, but nothing ever came of it. So, I did loads of different things for Wrexham, but I was always told I was too scruffy and uh, too small. So I, I didn't really grow till I was, you know, I came out of school and then I did loads of gymnastics and stuff like that. So I, so I did grow and then I went on the buildings and got stronger and fitter again. And then I did my own training really after, after you know, being on carrier all day. So yeah, it was yeah. a different route, but I don't I don't think I would have enjoyed being an apprentice. Mm. It would be too formal for me. I'm not, I'm not great with four walls as it is. I'm not great with authority, so... I know it's it's one of them where I'd have probably gone. I wouldn't have lasted. I don't think the way that you kind of got into the game may have been stood you in good stead moving forwards rather than coming through the academy. Yeah, I, I, I had more experience because of obviously I played above my level. I played against men. Um, then I moved obviously I moved around a bit to different clubs, which give me different you know different um, things really, uh, and different experiences and. Not all great, um, but I, I think they make you what you are. And I think, you know, getting used to travelling to different places. When I played for Winsford, I never trained with Winsford United at all because they were by Chester. I never trained once. I just turned up and played all the games. Um, so that was, that was good for me. But that team was full of Scousers. And that gave me another insight into, you know, I'd met Scousers before, but usually they just worked in a hotel in, in I didn't know really. <laughs> so, you know, I wasn't, wasn't that well up on them. But their attitude and that, you know, the manager was just couching it. I liked the way they did this stuff. I liked their enthusiasm. I liked their will to win. I liked the way they wouldn't back down on anybody. So I did like that sort of side of it. So, it, you know, I, I think they didn't have to so much. No one obviously had gone to Bury. They didn't have to blood me so much in the competitive bit because I was always going to be competitive because I'd been through that stage and I knew I could, I could, I could look after myself on my own whatever level I played at with men. So I was I was quite lucky that and, and, and I've been really lucky that other people have looked after me as well. Do you think um the fact that you were working in your sort of later teenage years, you obviously you mentioned that um you were hot, uh, hot carrier, uh you worked as a binman at a waiter and, and, and did various other, you know, the type of jobs that, that myself would have done when I was a teenager. Do you think that sort of stood you in good stead when you when you when you eventually became professional? Yeah, look, because, you know, I was working on the buildings and I was earning good money. I got less at Berry than I did the hot carrier. So I knew that, worst case scenario, if I failed at Berry, I'd go back to hot carrier. You know, and then obviously I did all right at Berry and then he sold me to Everton. I went and walked through the door at Everton. They're the only thing that I thought was, look, if it don't work out here, then I know I can play at that level. So, so I, you know, if I did okay at Everton... I might be able to make myself a career. So for me, it was about 
finding out about me mm. and what what I, what I could do because nobody knows what you can do until somebody gives you the the opportunity to do what you got to do. You know, and I was lucky really that I've been given opportunities and I've been surrounded by good people. If I do, you know, I look at some people and I think, well, if if that would have been, you know, if I'd have been in that situation with them kind of people, would I, you know, if, for instance, if Mike Walker was my first ever manager, would I have been the same person? I don't think I would have been. Mm. You know, I, I was lucky that Howard sort of understood me and, you know, let, let me crack on with doing stuff. Whereas I don't think Mike, Mike Walker was a bit more controlly and, you know, didn't like all that sort of stuff. And I suppose, in all fairness to him, they both had different agendas. Howard was trying to build a team, you know, Mike had come in and on the back of some success at Norwich, uh, had a different agenda again to change the team to him and I wasn't included in that. So I suppose different agendas, but I don't think I would have been the same person. It's like one of those things, isn't it, where like the stars align sometimes, don't they, the right person, right place, right time? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think, you know, I've seen it over the years at Evan. We can have a player who's, you know, talented, just can't fit in. I know there's there's something else about Evan that you, you just have to be able to fit in. Mm. Same for any club. You know, I walked into Stoke on loan at the end of my career, and I didn't realise what I was walking into. You know, it was so political. You know, you think you Chris Kamara come in as manager. The the two people who had the manager's job before were in in the background chipping away at him. The players were all unhappy. So it was, it was a different situation for me as well. And you know, I think it, you have to be really lucky to be surrounded by good people. And unfortunately, I was. Just to um, touch on when you, you first started at, to Everton then, and I believe in the first few seasons you actually suffered with some, some nasty ulcers and swollen feet and you ended up out on loan at Port Vale. What what was that period like? Um. Oh. Looking back, stupid because you know after the Liverpool game, I don't know whether Howard was in his own way protecting me. I mean, after the game, my my feet were ulcerated. Um, they used to go down to the bone, and sometimes I used to have injections into my little toes because they were they were all holy. But at the same time, if it had been now, that wouldn't have happened because it, all it needed was a chiropodist, and the chiropodist uh, rid of it all within two or three weeks. But I spent like two or three years like this, with my feet had swell up after the games and stuff. And all I did after after the Liverpool game, they took me to Lord's Hospital. They taped my little toe on my other toe apart and painted stuff on it. I think called Jensen Violet because it is violet, and I don't know what it did. Um, and then that was it. They left me in hospital for three days, and my toes opened like that. And it was just ridiculous because all it needed was a chiropodist to come in and just basically cut the dead skin away, get it all down, and would have been fine. Um, going to Port Vale was great for me because it was going back. Um, the lads in there were, were brilliant. They were all pros. And funny enough, there's a there's a thing going around now with Ernie Moss, who's got dementia, um, who's a centre-forward, a really good centre-forward, and I played with him. And they, they still think that's with heading the ball. So I know his, his, you know, his, his daughter's really pushing for more stuff, more investigation into dimensions and in football. So, you know, it's funny how it comes around, really. But they were a good set of lads and the manager was was mad as a hatter and was great, to be fair. It was all about enthusiasm and all that. And it was nice to go back to somewhere where I was really comfortable 
know, and, and they did try and sign me, but I wouldn't wouldn't let me go anyway. He didn't tell me that until after I come back. To be fair to him, <laughs> but so, but again, that was I was glad that I was wanted at Port Vale, but I was glad that I was wanted by Howard as well. So it was kind of nice. It was a nice double-edged sword for me. I can imagine, yeah, and uh, the, Everton was such a big club at the time as well. You obviously would have wanted to succeed there first, but if well, if they would have let you spoke to Port Vale, would you have maybe took the move permanently? In all fairness, right, everybody just wants to be wanted. Yeah, so, nice to be wanted at Port Vale, and nice to be wanted at Evan. Um, I did, never thought I'd go to Port Vale. In all fairness, not because Everton was a big club, but if I would want me, that was enough for me. Yeah, that's enough. You know, whatever else goes on, there's no point in me going back there if the geezer didn't want me in the first place. So he wanted me back, and that was that was enough for me. And I want to come back with a, a sort of different way. You know, I'd come back. I suppose it, in a way, I took a step back to go forward again, which I don't think is a, a bad thing. In lots of things, you know, I suppose if if I was running against the wall, I'd smash my face on it. Port Vale told me a way to go round the wall. Yeah, that that's a good point you make there, and I think it's a problem with modern day football where these young lads just don't get enough exposure or feel they're too above an, a certain level to maybe turn their noses up at a low move to a lower league club. But it can really give you great grounding, can't it? Yeah, I I think so. I think it's. I think it's a bit, bit di- still a little bit different now. Not not as much as it used to be because everybody plays the same way now. You know, it used to be the higher up you go, the more football was played, the more physical, the lower you got. And now, now it tends not to be as much as that. You know, it, the, the the pitches now are all perfect. The, the the grounds are better than they have ever been. So I think now there's there's something you need to shake out of of the younger players. Is that is how good they want to be, but I think the society in football is one where you've got a controlling society where people tell you how long you should train for, what you should eat, what you should drink, and they tell you what you should do with the ball at every opportunity. So they micromanage, and I think sometimes you need people who can think because at the end of the day, when you go on the pitch, you you can't have somebody with an iPad on the sidelines making decisions for you. And I, and I think sometimes the decision making and if you want to really, really improve, you've got now a, a battle with your physios and your, your fitness people going, well, no, no, you've done enough. You know, you, you play three games this month. You know, you need a rest. Well, if you're telling me I need a rest and you're telling me that I'm tired, that's not a real good signal for anybody to send out to anybody. You know? Yeah. So I think there's there's a... There's an undercurrent in football where it's it's been brought up that we are sending bad signals to players, you know, and we have the best psychologists in football now than ever before. And yet, if you hear some of the things, well, okay, yeah, yeah, he's having a bad time in front of the goal. Yeah, it's psychological. Well, what are you doing? And you go, well, that that fella, you know, he gets tired after seventy minutes. But you're a fitness expert. Why? We're not we're not asking him questions. We're just accepting that it's a fact. Because everybody tells us, yeah, players can't last 90 minutes anymore. It's funny because all the ones that are valuable stay on the pitch the longest. For me, the elite is the elite. And if the Premier League can't last, I would go in and sack all the fitness people. If he's got a problem mentally and that fellow's not doing anything for him, then I would sack him. 
And I do believe we've got into a position now where because we have so many people talk so much shit about football, is that we're starting to believe it. You know, no, nobody talks about, um, you know, a striker, play, you know, a player playing behind a striker. It's all between the lines and shit like that. Well, everybody's between the lines, also be off the pitch. So uh, I really don't get, we've changed over, but it's the same game. But there's been another, another shift in that, we have to come up with new terminology for everything because the old terminology was no good because it was too, it was too clear, too precise. You know, and I think players are overcoached, and yet everybody in the stand wants to see a gazer. Everybody yeah. wants to see a personality. They want to see something on the pitch that reflects who the person is. But most of them are just bland, and they're bland yeah. because the coaches don't trust them. They're bland because they're micromanaged. They're bland because they're told what to do every minute of their lives, and it's as if they can't be trusted to make their own decisions. So when they when they have to play off the cuff, you know it's very very difficult for them. And it's to me it's it's a, it's about freedom of expression as well. You know we don't get the type of people that we used to get. Stats. You know, why did an argument with Bobby Gould when I was playing for Wales? He brought in all his stats, and I said, right. So if I kick the ball to centre forward ninety nine times out of hundred. And he loses it 99 times 100. That's bad. That's bad for me, is it? And he went, yeah. So, but that don't make any sense. It's not my fault if he shares it. <laughs> but it's not, is it? If I kick it straight onto his head and he and he loses possession with it, that's not down to me because I found what I need to do. So I think you can read. Well, look, look, look at Trump and look at look at look at Boris Johnson. You can read statistics at any way you want, and uh, that, that's the problem. And um, gambling. You know, is I don't think people realise how bad it is. I don't think um, until until you know somebody who's done it, you know somebody who can't help themselves. And uh, I think it's because it's not. Everybody thinks it's somebody in a, in the casino at night just put you know spending it, and spending it. It's not. You know, and even now when you look around, you see all the adverts on television for gambling, and uh, it's constant, and even more so now because people have got time on their hands. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I, I do think the FA are a pile of shite because they don't want to do anything about it. The clubs really should go out and say, no, we can't do it. You know, morally, we can't do it. If you're thinking about losing money, well, you know, here we go. We've got Betfred or whatever we've got on our shirts or Paddy Power or whatever. And, I, and I've worked for both of them. Um, and that's one of the main reasons why I won't do it anymore. It's because, you know, I met Alan... Um, and we, we've had a chat about stuff and about know, Callan Harris, the, the AM in Swansea, who's really against gambling. And I suppose it was like everything else. Until you, you, you meet someone, talk to them, you don't really have any idea. And I think it's the humanising of everything that's going to get a message through. And that, that's why you know, the mental health things come now, because they've seen people talk about it. And I think once you start you know, humanising everything, then people can understand it. Yeah. People, oh yeah. Okay. This that, and the other. It's the same with gambling. You know, we had players who used to bet on everything. Yeah. All, all the time. And, oh yeah, it was all right. Yeah, it was good. It was good as gold. You know, uh, we could stop when we want. Well, so yeah, it's all very well to say that, but where's your support network? How how would you know you can stop? You know, and where, where is the support for these people? Um, Scotty, we had on the show. He was talking about his story now. Runs something called. Well, he he helps um lecture at um, Epic Risk Management. 
And one thing he said is because football contracts are so much more now, even before you've kicked the ball at senior level, young players have a lot of money and a lot of time. And that's a very dangerous mix. Whereas I suppose back in your era, you, the good money came after you've actually earned and carved out a career for yourself. But now some of these lads, just so they don't get poached, are on thousands of pounds a week and they train for three hours a day. So what do you do for the rest of the day? Well, I and, uh, and re- you try and recreate your buzz that you get on a Saturday. Yeah. You know, and you can go out and you can buy a, a Bentley. The next day you can buy a Ferrari. But you can't keep buying cars all week. You can buy a house, you can do it up as much as you want. But there's a limit to that. So I think it's all about it's trying to recreate that buzz. To and that that's the problem for young young ones. They want they want the buzz, they want the excitement, but you have no way of getting it out of this system. And I, I do think sometimes that's where they need to be looked at. Is is yes, you're gambling or why are you gambling? Right, you're gambling because you enjoy it, you get the buzz, you get addicted. Well, if you if you're looking for a buzz then what can we replace that with? Unfortunately, I'm, I'm not sure what you can do. And I, and I think that's, this is where may, maybe they should be looking at, and I did look at somebody the other day about gambling and replacing like a buzz, what gives you a good feeling is whether, you know, maybe somewhere in the brain there's something that they they could do or, 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 or are you more susceptible earlier so you could have a test. So maybe look at you. Maybe look at the genetics, and and then look at maybe take some you know uh, brain scans of people who who have been addictive, and, and see where they go, and see you know go down that route as well as the looking at the environment. And I think if you look at the environment, you look you're looking at you know clinical trials, then you've got to have a chance of coming up with something. But at the moment, you know how do you replace your buzz? You know you know it's. Like an alcoholic, in it after three pints, it's nothing after after ten pints. You know, okay, you know. So he needs more and more. He needs to get up and do it. What what drives compulsiveness? So is there something we can do to stop them being compulsive and and wanting that thing? You know, and it's the same with anything. Because once they find that thing that stops them having that buzz, then a lot of things you know would be cured. But at the moment. I'm not sure what it is, and I don't think anybody else is. To, to jump back on your career then, um, Everton's most decorated footballer, um, arguably best goalkeeper in the world for a considerable period of time. As somebody who came into the game late and had quite humble beginnings, how, how did that feel? How did you take that in your stride emotionally at the time? If I'm honest, I didn't really give a shit, to be fair. <laughs> because it's only somebody's opinion, isn't it? Yeah. Look, look and, and you're... I went through a period where n- nobody would write anything bad about me. And I went through a period where they did write shit about me. Then I went through a period where, you know, I was good also and so and now I've retired. I'm fucking great. And I think I think you've got to realise where you are at your stage in your career. You know, I was just started off. I didn't do that great at Everton to start with, so so I got a bit of stick here and there. But it was okay because potentially I was okay. They got in and did well, and then I was in my prime, so I, I obviously must be great. Every save I made was enhanced by because I was on my prime. Then as I got over a certain age, it was, well, yeah, you know, veteran veteran makes this mistake, or veteran didn't do as well for that. Even though I was playing, for me, I was playing the same type of game. And then, you know, so you got to realise what stage of career you're at, how people treat you. Um, and also... As soon as you start worrying about whether you're good at this or good at that, somebody down the road's better. And I and I used to come into training and go, right, 
sometimes they didn't want to train, you know, come in and go, ah, I'm knackered, we've had a long trip to Norwich. You've had to come in for a bath and we've got to train tomorrow, really tiring. And then you think, well, if I don't do it because I'm in charge of me, then somebody down the road is going to be doing it and they'll end up being better than me. And I don't want that. So I tried to use everything as a as a yardstick for me. I knew that someone else, somebody else was going to be better than me eventually. But I want to keep my place at Everton and I want to keep my my standards up, if you like. So I, I didn't want to drop my standards because, you know, I couldn't be asked one day. Because if you can't be asked one day, then maybe the next two days you can't be asked. And before you know it, it's six months down the road and, you know, I'm, I'm back in Tesco stacking shelves. Um, I think I read in an article that you said I was really self-centred when I was playing. I couldn't give a fuck about anything else other than playing football. I'd rather be me now. But do you think to be as successful as you were, you had to be that one-track-minded and have that tunnel vision? I think to a certain extent you did. I'm not sure. Again, I'm not sure whether the people who surround you may not be the right people for you at times as well. Uh, I think if I had the experience I have now and I had the people around me now, if I had done then, then it, it might have been different. I might have had a more of a balanced life, but what I'm, all I wanted to do was go in and, and I was probably obsessed with just getting better. And I read everything I could, I watched as many videos as I could. You know, I, I did everything I could to look at, you know, I looked at oils I could use myself, I looked at colours. That's why I got the black shirt. You know, I looked at what I could eat uh, uh, before the game. I found some stuff called Glycosport, believe it or not, that they'd had good tests with in one of the Scandinavian countries, I think, with, with dementia. So it used to buzz you, supposed to buzz your uh, concentration. So it used to take like tar, but I, I took that. And I, I tried to do as, as much as I could to make sure that I was better and the tiniest little bit would would make me better so i wasn't i wasn't interested in massive gains because nobody makes massive gains you make you make slight ones and my thing was to try and improve every season to be better than what i was the season before oh and that, that was my driver really, is, to, is to is to be the best i possibly could and then you, you'd look and say oh that was a great savior but i expected to make it and then you say, well, okay, I did this, I did that. Yeah, well, great, but that's gone. Let's move on to the next thing. So probably, in a sense, not quite took it all in as I went away, as, as I went along, sorry. But now I've got time to look back and reflect and thinking, yeah, actually did okay. Maybe I should have had more of Maybe I should have been more interested in more other things. But in fact, there was, was fuck all intro else to interest me, to be fair. <laughs> to be honest, I don't think you could have done much more than you did on the field. Would you say you were your biggest critic then? Uh, when, if you let in a goal, maybe you should have saved. Is that something you'd think about constantly, or would you be good at drawing a, a line in the sand and going, "We move on to the next game"? Well, if it, <clears throat> I got better as I got older. But when I first did it, I think if I'd have seen someone in the road I didn't like, I would have run them over. Yeah, I was dead angry driving home. But but then I got to realize, well, you know, I'm angry because. I'm angry at myself for doing something stupid. And then you get to a point where you go, well, actually, well, it's not, I can't change it. There's no point in beating myself up. Did I know why I did that mistake? Yes, I did. Okay, so I'll fix it next time. Yeah. And then if I made the same mistake again, I'd be, I'd be absolutely fuming. But I wouldn't make it more than twice. 
ever. And if yeah. one, then I would hopefully I'd just sit down and work out why I'd done it and say, right, let's think about this, let's think about that. And then you work out a solution. And I, and I think it's the same as any mental health. You know, I was an experiment to try and get the best out of myself. And now if you take anxiety, depression, whatever you want to do, is that you try things and you should never stop trying things, I don't think, until you find the thing that works for you. Because yeah. with anxiety, it could, it could be music, it could be any, it could be painting, whatever it is. Then I don't think we should look at, you know what, whenever I read stuff about depression and anxiety, you know, there's only, oh, we can only do one or two things with you. Well, you can't. You can do hundreds of things. Let's just try them all. What's the worst can happen? Yeah. You've got anxiety. You've got anxiety. The anxiety will still be there if you go and do tap dancing. It'll still be there. But, you know, do you do you go, okay, I accept I've got it, so let's just move on and do my life anyway. So I, I think you've just got to try everything. I think that's what I try to do in, go, in my, my career, really, is try anything that will give me an improvement. And if it didn't work, what's the worst can happen? Just, uh, just go back to what I was doing before because I knew it worked. Or I knew, I knew what I was doing. And I think it's the same mental health. The idea is you try and move things forward and try and be positive all the time. And that's what I'm saying. If you've got somebody with a mindset who's behind you doing that as a psychologist or, or a clinician, whatever you want to call it, or just your mate, then I think that's a better thing than somebody sitting in a room with you going, yeah, life shit in it. Because yeah. I think you need... You know, let's let's come on. Let's have, maybe look at it a different way. And I, and I did look at, you know, football's all about solving problems for me. You know, you solve a problem, I'd stop them scoring. You know, how did he come through last time? Where's he going to cross the ball? You know, anticipating things. So, so for me, it's a problem that we need to try and solve. And sometimes, the things have to be from outside the box. They can't always be in that little box of tricks that you've always used because nothing moves forward then. And I think you know, on a podcast like this, a different. You, know, you can get people to talk about different things or there's, there's things that they might hear on your podcast that they've never thought of. That's where the beauty is. It's not it's not it's not sometimes the big things that make a difference. It's the it's the little things. It may be just a little spark somewhere. And and that, that can cause a chain reaction where they get they go and they go, actually I never thought of it like that. Let's let's try that then. Okay. So I've got anxiety when I get up this morning. Okay, how long does it last? Well, okay, well, I'm looking at, you know, a panic attack. How long can a panic attack actually last for? <laughs> if you sit down and go, oh, I'm fed up with this, I'm keep getting this, keep getting that. You know, take a panic attack, a panic attack will last so long. So it, it, it most people will fight it because they don't want to, well, once you say, oh, fuck it, let's, just, let's go through it because the adrenaline always lasts so long and then it'll just drain out. Like a petrol tank, it'll just drain out. So fuck it, let's just work, let's just work with it. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so what? So just accept it and then go, okay, I've got it. But I'm still going to shop. I'm still going to do this. I'm still going to try and do that. But if I've got it, I've got it. And then the more sometimes you accept that it's there and it's going to happen because you know you can't stop it, why would you want to fight it? Because at the end of the day, you know that tank's running. You know your tank's leaking all the time. It's leaking the stuff out. You're using your, your fuel because eventually it will it will subside. And I think sometimes it's it's looking at it maybe visually where there's your there's your tank of adrenaline it's going to drip off so eventually that will, you know that you know two things one that's going to run out and two you're never going to die because you never have in the past and and that to me is two big things you know so but it's just getting the, the rationale to sit down and and think about it and maybe just talk about it and go right okay 
panic attacks one thing okay anxiety okay well anxiety what we've got anxiety okay let's try and work through this then let's try and you know you can't get out of bed to get to the door okay let's just visualize you getting out of bed one day and just standing there then getting back in because nothing has to work instantaneously you know you, you've got it you've, you've had it for a couple of years you know whatever then let's take it slowly and let's do it a bit by bit but don't be disappointed don't yeah up if you can't reach your targets because nobody always reaches their targets and failures it's never a failure because it's an attempt and i always work on the basis and i did in football every loss brings you closer to a win and so growing up we we knew a lot about your career and obviously got friends family who, who adore everton and adore yourself now you had some amazing years at Everton, but sort of mid nineties there was a sort of a downward spiral in the team's performance, and I think that actually led at one point in a death threat from a fan when you picked up four points from twelve games. Now I appreciate that's a very very small minority who were probably having a go at the time, but could you talk us through that incident and what that was like? Um, well, I got a message through saying they were going to uh, do stuff to my family and burn my house down with the family in it. But, you know, I took the letter to the chairman, Sir Philip Carter at the time, and I said, look, I've got this letter. He went, yeah, and? I was like, oh, yeah, fucking what do you mean, and? So they said, my family went, well, you know. And I thought, I can't believe you're not fucking taking it seriously. So I thought, this is just fucking wrong. But at the end of the day, you know, when I look back on it, I'm thinking, well, maybe you dealt with more than me. But I would rather talk, spoke to somebody in the police and they said, yeah, but, you know, you just get fucking cranks if write letters, blah, blah, blah. I'd never had it before. Um, and to be and fair, was you genuinely scared at the time, Never. Well, I've never had one. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah. look, I, can, I, I think I can look after myself. I think I'm big enough to look after myself, but I had a, you know, I had a daughter and I had a wife and in my house and I didn't want that anything to do on and because we're away a lot you know things can happen can't they no definitely it's, it's a shocking thing to happen to anybody and for the the club to to have that stance I think is well I think in a, strange. Way, in a way it did help because I thought oh fuck it then if you're not taking it seriously and then I, I'm, I'm sure I made sure there was always somebody around her when I was away and I did you know I did. Luckily, we lived next door to the uh, chief constable of the um, North Wales Police at the time, so that was a help. Um, not that he was any fucking use to be fair, but, <laughs> but. And the thing is, you've obviously got a great relationship with Everton fans, um, and you still do to this day. Did you? You didn't see that as tarnishing any sort of period of time at the club or was it just this is one idiot who's probably got issues himself that's taken football too far? Well, I think it, because of, I think someone had to go at me when I went to get the ball and I went, oh, fuck off, you wanker. And then I got, I think I got on the paper and I think it grew from there. So I don't know whether it was a serious, uh, but yeah, but it, I don't think it was a serious threat in the end. But it, but it was, you know, because they made me apologise in the paper and stuff, which... No, I suppose I had to do, but I didn't really want to do because I thought, hang on a minute, this fella's calling me a fucking useless twat and all that, so why can't I tell him to fuck off? I mean, because in any other walk of life, I'd be able to do it. But because I wasn't allowed to do it, I think 
because that came out and I think somebody else had obviously thought, oh, fuck him, then we'll, we'll write this letter. I never thought it was anybody... I didn't think it was a fair reflection on any of the fans or anything like that. I just thought, I thought it was somebody who was just fucking gone over the edge, really, and that was it. But after a week or whatever, it was... I forgot all about it anyway. They weren't going to do anything. We played it it almost goes back to what we talked about before, about brands, the way you have to apologise for swearing at somebody who's, who's verbally assaulted you first. And then somebody sends you a death threat, and you're just got to, you've just been told to forget about it and put it in the bin. It's almost unbelievable that they take that human element away from footballers that you've got emotions to. Well, I, I think that's right, but but nobody wants them to have emotions, do they? Because you know, you have to be controlled. You you have to be controlled in in that controlled environment. But the thing that people got to realise is that football's a cross section of lads. Well, you've seen it in the women's game now as well because. There's bits of shit creeping into that, isn't there? They get a bit of abuse. So it's a cross-section of lads. When you go anywhere, they're not all going to be nice people. They're not all going to be idiots. But they reflect what the population is. Some would be incredibly clever. Some would be thick. Some, some, you know, at this moment in time, you guarantee there's, there's gay footballers, but they can't come out because of the, the way things are. You you look at just a cross section of society. There's got to be whatever there is in society that isn't within that uh, industry. So I, I don't think it's. I think it's just one of those things where I wouldn't dream of when a fella comes to fit a fucking tire on my car or do something to say fucking hell, mate. You're doing a shit job here. You fucking wank one. You fuck off. <laughs> yeah, it's Probably. true. Oh, yeah. Put that fucking washing machine in properly, you useless twat. I can't believe you've done that. I'm paying you this much money and you're fucking rubbish. You you wouldn't get that. But, you know, you've also got to remember that. The working class gamers, they worked the bollocks off whenever they worked all week. They come to the match and it was a release for them. If you if you take 22 people's, well, uh, there's, there's more than 22 now, but you take each side and the referee's lot, you could argue, is it better to have 40,000 people going away well, some of them will go happy and some of them won't, but the majority, for them to let their shit out on top of the people that, you know, are, are, are providing the entertainment or non-entertainment as it goes, than rather have the, the 40 or 50 be well protected. You need to have an, you know, sort of balance in both, but at the same time, you know, there's, there's got to be release for people as well and maybe... May Without that release, there'd be other trouble somewhere else. Yeah, maybe maybe you're right. Yeah, they get it out of the football and it stops them doing something worse elsewhere. And I, th- I think it's obviously important to say as well that there's some of people's happiest moments at football games as well. And I don't want us to just focus on the negative yeah, and we, we just share that. How many kids were born after the FA Cup finals and European Cup finals and Cup Winners Cup finals? How many kids were born after that and the titles? Yeah. So you know there's a real good side of it. And I do think all I'm saying, I think, is is there's got to be a line somewhere. And at the moment, the lines are blurred. And the lines are blurred because the lines are blurred in society. You know, you've got probably Boris Johnson again. I can go back to Boris Johnson and Trump, who, who are not setting good role models. You know, if Boris, if Boris Johnson was a kid in my school... And he and he, he spoke the way he speaks. We'd have to exclude him. Yeah, and good point, yeah. because 
we can't have people lying and homophobic and racist and sexist. We can't we can't have that in school. But it seems to be acceptable at the higher levels because there's been a drive to get Europe done. And then he's getting Europe done is it's pushing the us and the uh, us and them situation all the way through the country. And and it's been wrong and you've got three other people probably doing the same thing. And I think that's that's creeped creep, crept into football, sorry. And I think it, it has been really, really difficult. And I think at the moment, football's got to stamp its authority back. And, and so so society, really. And we, we can't do it at the moment because the people in power are just hopeless. Just to um, sort of touch on then, back onto your career, Nev. In, in 1996, you were awarded an MBE. Um, what was that like? Um, so it was okay, to be fair. I felt a bit of a fraud, really, because when I walked in, there's all sorts of people in uniform. Um, because you go, I think there's there's four rooms they have. So you have OBEs, MBEs, something else and something else. So they all fed into one bit from four corners. And you just have to say, you know, you've got a, you just got to nod and, and dip your head and be nice. The funny thing was, in the letter, though, they offered me the video of the thing for 99 quid. Which I thought was funny. <laughs> I just thought, yeah, okay, we want, yeah, because no one else can film it, can they? So they've got that. Um, so I thought that was quite funny. Um, but yeah, because you see, you know, there's people in uniforms and all, and you're thinking, well, I wonder what he's done, and he, you know, the Gurkhas there and stuff like that. They've always been through horrendous things, and I've got an MBE for kicking the ball around. I like the work lot. you're doing on Twitter is is really something that stood out to us, and one of the reasons we we wanted you on the show because. We're trying to give people a platform and what we love about what you've done is the platform you're giving people as well. Uh, and I think it's very admirable what you've been doing. And I know you don't come across as somebody who does it because they wanted to be praised for it. A lot of people tend to do these things because they want to be seen to doing them. I think you've actually got to genuinely care and it comes across that you do. Well, I look at it two ways, really. It gets me off Twitter because I'd be on it all fucking day otherwise. <laughs> two, when I sat down, I basically don't know fuck all. So it's it's a good way of learning. And you know, like I say, there's the things that you can learn about that I never thought, and I never had the opportunity to do before. And, and I've always liked people who who've got fight in them. You know, the sex workers. Even now, not one of the parties has mentioned the sex workers, but they're living round your houses. Yeah, the fucking mothers, the daughters, the sons, the brothers, the cousins, the aunties, the uncles, but. The, what's going to happen to them? You know, so there's a whole point of society which is gets on my tits, to be fair, that why, why can't we look after all of society? And that's why I think it's... It bugs me an awful lot that I can't get anybody to listen. You know, to... What's going to happen to them? You know, and if you're talking about spreading diseases, you know, this, this way, and then they've got... You're forcing them out to work. You're forcing them to do stuff to go out and find people to, to be with. And and what I did realise is that they do a brilliant job on most of them. Because yeah. you know, I always think that as a sex worker that's hanging on the street corner. That hangs on the street corner. But in all fairness, there's, there's different types. You know, there's people who give disabled people the love and attention that they need that they never get anywhere else. There's people who go off around the world and cost a fortune for everybody. And there's people who want to do it because they want to send the kids to college. They want to do all sorts of different things. So there's there's a million different reasons why they do it. But people lump sex trafficking and 
human trafficking and, and with sex work, but it's it's not all the time. And if, if the police decriminalised sex workers, then they would have more chance to get all of the traffickers and and really concentrate their efforts where they should be concentrated. And I think that's I don't like people who, who just get brushed aside. I, I don't. I never have done, and that's one of the reasons why they do it. So I think what do I do? I don't do fuck all. I just say, oh, yeah, I use this. It's fuck all, is it? It's really, it doesn't, doesn't put me out, doesn't do anything, but it keeps me off. For, so for me, it's it's a good way of giving somebody else, what is it now, 160,000 people to say, look, hang on a minute, what about this, what about that? And, and most of the time, people receive really, really well. Okay, we've had a few incidents of people going too far, but you know, I'm quite aware that not everything's going to go smoothly. But what do I do? Do I stop it and go, well, I can't do that anymore because, you know, somebody's messed up? Or do I say, well, fuck it, let's just keep going. And whatever it is, it is. But the reason I'm talking to you is because of that. And yeah. So it's got, no, me to, yeah. got me into places, got me to talk to people I'd never speak to. And then that, to me, is, a, is another good reason. I can speak to people around the world. There's people I speak to now. Who in a billion billion years I'd never speak, I'd never spoke to before. So it's up my horizons up, and it's if I want to know something, I'll just put it on Twitter. And within five minutes, I know the answer. I think um, it's it's very good what you're doing, Nev. And well, one I'll, question, no, I want sorry, go on. The only thing I would say is that you can't work in isolation, and we we've got to somehow get through to charities. Is that together? They've got to be together and they've got to get together with the NHS and they've got to work together because, like I said to you at the moment, there is no there is no cohesion. Now, with the NHS being what it is, we need the charities to pick up some of the slack. We need the charities that have always need to pick up. You know, if, I, if I'm sat in A&E and I'm having really dark thoughts about suicide, I don't want to wait three hours. And I want someone in the hospital to go, actually, look, you're going to be three hours here. But here's a charity. Bring them now. They'll be down in 10 minutes. Look, I'm not an expert in mental health. So I would never, ever start a charity up tomorrow. Because I don't know enough. I'd be dangerous. Now, how many charities out there, you know, are, are regulated in terms of their knowledge? I don't, I don't, I don't mean that, you know, that you want you everybody wants to make a difference at a charity everybody does but how do we how do we make sure that they're giving the right information out and i think that's where the nhs must come in and the nhs must say well actually yes come through the training with the nhs and, and we know that you're giving the right kind of care but 99.9 have probably got it but there'll always be one or two who, who, who could do better i'm saying if we can get some sort of regulatory thing where it's about the the quality that they give out, not just because they've got a big heart. Then I think, yeah, you do need a big heart, but you need the knowledge because there's been times when I've had to tweet somebody in the middle of the conversation going, I can't deal with this. Can you help me out? And it's happened two or three times. And there's things that I've learned on here that you must protect yourself. And sometimes that I run into a brick wall and I can't physically or, 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 or do anything to help anymore and I don't understand where I need to go next 
So I've got a little group of people who I can just tweet and hopefully they'll come back to me and I'll just pass them on to me. And that's been good, but it's also shown that I have a lack of knowledge and I can take it so far. You know, and I, I do try and make sure that I, I do courses. I mean, I've done probably 10 on mental health since I've been off work. I've done my suicide stuff. You know, I've done lots of mental health ones through Unison, but you need something else around you as well when you haven't got the answer. And that's why I think we need to make sure that the information that's given out is, is the right information. You, you mentioned um, earlier about the being gay footballers out there and, and not coming forward. I know it's a difficult question, but what, why do you think that is? And, and will that change? It's going to change. You know it's going to change because there's scum papers about. So yeah. you have a choice in this life. Is that you either you either going to come out in the, in the right way, or someone's going to out you? What do you think, as a former footballer? I know when you when you were playing the game, the dressing room was probably completely different to what it is now. But if one of your teammates came out, what do you think the reaction would have been? We'd have all took the piss out of them and slaughtered them, and then we just took up from. Yeah, so that's it. You when you're in the dressing room. It's like very much you doing your show now. You can take the piss out of each other. But when someone takes the piss out of the show, you all band together and stick up for each other. Yeah, it's very true. That's almost like no one takes the piss out of him but us. Yeah. That sort of attitude. And that, that's exactly what you get in there. And it doesn't matter what you are. Nobody no, nobody would give a shit. Right? I did a thing with, you know, when I was on Twitter once saying, well, you know, would you mind if... Having a, had a gay footballer, uh, you know, a gay player, and he said, Well, as long as you can score 30 goals, he gives a fuck. You just want to be yeah. first. So I, I think, you know, it will come a point, but I, I do think the FA and people are, are, are very slow and very ponderous towards it. And it's going to happen. And when it happens, everything will be a reaction, not a planned action. And I think that's that's the problem for me is that. I would like to see something done now. Um, but for me, like you, you see people who will just look the other way and you see people like yourself who will give your platform and give your voice and champion other humans that you've probably never met or probably will never meet. But I just really want to try and understand, is that always from someone who's been through situations with their mental health where they've struggled and they've gone to hell and back or is it just through further education like what you've done yourself which has given you that attitude of actually caring um i, I just think yeah you either do or you don't i think it's very simple isn't it uh, or or you go to an experience that makes you care yeah you know, i think everybody deep down is but this, this, you know, this. I still get days when, you know, we had a we had a temporary teacher or fella come in not so long back to school, and I went, oh, I might even not really, and I went, oh, okay, see you later. And I thought afterwards, I thought, oh, fuck, yeah. I really just stopped and talked to him. But we were on our way out to pick the kids up, and I've seen him the rest of the day, and I thought, oh, shit. And I think sometimes it's that is is that when people say no, everyone goes, oh, fuck, right, what do I do now? Yeah, <laughs> and I think it it is hard at times, you know. To, to, it's hard at times to get your positivity, and I don't know what it's like you, but sometimes you know when you 
speak about it all day and it is quite draining. Now, I see what I normally do if someone comes on to me and says, right, this, this, and I don't know who they are. I go on their thing on their um, Twitter and I look at all the, all the things and I look at do everything. Yeah. I look at the one thing that I can connect with or something to talk about apart from what they're talking about. Do you do you get a lot of people who like come to you personally for advice? Uh, maybe not advice as such, but they tell me that they they've had enough. Yeah, uh, that is quite heavy, then, isn't it, to deal with? Yeah, and sometimes I can I can do it all, and sometimes I don't. Um, all I try and do is, is is do what I always do is distract. Yeah. <laughs> so I look at all of the, all the all the stuff on Twitter and go right, okay. Or you, you do sports, or you let's talk about this. And for me, it's about just disengaging their brain on, on one path and putting it on another. Yeah. But and I think, I I think... Sorry, I, go on. Well, I just say sometimes, in, you know, it's, if I get up sort of, I don't know, say I get up at 10 o'clock in the morning and I put my Twitter on and it's like, no, I'm here, I want to do this. I think, shit, I've got a cup of tea yet. Yeah. You, got this or someone will say well you need to speak to so-and-so because they they've had enough you right okay so i need to speak to them and and how would you refuse that no that's it isn't it you feel i I feel like um like we're quite similar in a lot of ways because i feel like i was brought up to believe that you're socially responsible for you know people in a, in a capacity of if they reach out, then it's your responsibility I to think help. I think you are, but I also think you've got a, a duty to yourself to keep yourself safe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people, that's one of the things I have learned, is that if I don't think it's going to go well for me or, you know, or I'm not making more headway that I should be making, then I do tweet other people and say look can you have a look at this blah blah whatever yeah use other people so i'm I'm lucky that way but i also realized is this people who come on all the time and i learned quickly that sometimes it's not all about the end product with them it's about just having someone regular to talk to yeah absolutely there's a lot of lonely people out there especially on social media yeah there is but again you have to set yourself targets in time because, you know, I had one fella from Canada who, who came on a lot and was on for an hour. Now, I'm getting up at five o'clock to go to work in the morning and I, you know, if I'm there past midnight, I'm, yeah, you, you're, yes, it's great that I'm here for you, but at the end of the day, I have to have my own life as well. So, like I say, sometimes I can pass them on to other people who've, been with the Samaritans and they were good people who could, who could pick up where I leave off. You can hide, you can run, you can hide, you can run, you can hide, you can hide.